Chapter 6 Work, Work, Work or Work-Life Balance How to Find Harmony Between Home and the Office Courtesy of Spider-Man, Buddhist Monks, Albert Einstein, Professional Wrestlers, and Genghis Khan Anyone who knows baseball knows Ted Williams. He played professionally from 1939 to 1960 and is one of the undisputed greatest hitters of all time, right up there with Babe Ruth. But whether you're familiar with him or not, I have news for you. Ted Williams never played baseball. Nope, he never did. The problem there is the verb. Williams wasn't playing. To him, hitting a baseball wasn't a game. He always took it very, very seriously. In a 1988 interview, he said as a child he literally wished on a falling star that he would become the greatest hitter to ever live. But he didn't sit around and wait for the dream to come true. His obsessive, perfectionist work ethic would bring him more success than any descending celestial body would. Williams said, I insist that regardless of physical assets, I would never have gained a headline for hitting if I had not kept everlastingly at it and thought of nothing else the year round. I only lived for my next time at bat. 10,000 hours to achieve expertise? Williams probably did that a few times over. He was obsessed. After school, he'd go to a local field and practice hitting until 9 p.m., only stopping because that's when they turned the lights out. Then he'd go home and practice in the backyard until his parents made him go to bed. He'd get to school early so he could fit in more swings before classes started. He'd bring his bat to class. He picked courses that had less homework, not because he was lazy, but so he'd have more time for hitting. That still wasn't enough practice time for Ted. In a move that would make Chapter 3's Spencer Glendon and Peter Drucker proud, he ignored fielding almost altogether. Occasionally, he could be seen on the field with his back facing home plate. And even then, he'd be swinging his glove like a bat, practicing, much to the frustration of his fellow players. As for girls, no time. He was a virgin until his second year in the major leagues. When he joined the major leagues, he lied about his birthday, saying it was October instead of August. Why? A birthday during the baseball season might be a distraction. Williams told Time magazine, Hundreds of kids have the natural ability to become great ball players, but nothing except practice, practice, practice will bring out that ability. It wasn't mere hours that made Williams so great. It was how he spent those hours. He was a perfectionist, constantly trying to improve. He turned the game of baseball into pure science, long before sabermetrics or moneyball. Williams even visited MIT to learn more about the physics of baseball. He studied the best batters and would eventually write a book, The Science of Hitting, that to this day is still considered the best book on the subject. His secret sauce was the intensity with which he studied pitchers. Williams believed in knowing your enemy, and he certainly saw pitchers as the enemy, often joking. What do you think is dumber than a pitcher? Two pitchers. He would say, you're not playing the Cincinnati Reds or the Cleveland Indians. You're playing that pitcher, and he's the guy you concentrate on. He kissed up to the umpires to get their insights on various pitchers' styles and kept notes on them in a little black book. He interrogated older players for more info on the opposition. I don't guess what they throw. I figure out what they're going to throw, he said. 
People would marvel at how he could recount the habits and preferences of different pitchers decades after his career came to a close. But this perfectionist sensitivity that made him perform so well led to much strife with sports writers who covered him. Their criticism enraged a man who already put so much pressure on himself to be the best. His bats were rubbed with alcohol on a nightly basis to keep them clean, and he weighed them to make sure they weren't being affected by condensation. They had their own locker next to his in the clubhouse. Williams handled them lovingly, like a baby, and then he would practice his hitting with them until his hands bled. It paid off. In a New Yorker profile of Ted Williams, John Updike wrote, No other player so constantly brought to the plate that intensity of competence that crowds the throat with joy. But, excuse the pun, life can throw you a curveball. When World War II began, Williams was called to serve. His response to having to derail his career? Well, if he had to be a Marine combat pilot, he'd be great at that too. John Glenn, a friend of Williams, wrote in his autobiography, he gave flying the same perfectionist's attention he gave to his hitting. Despite not having more than a high school education, Ted was ruled by a rage to master any task in front of him, and he quickly became competent at whatever was needed. Due to the war, he missed three full seasons of baseball. When he returned to the game, did he miss a step? Nope. He doubled his already insane batting regimen and joined the lineup three weeks later. While most professional sports are undeniably a young man's game, Williams competed in the major leagues until the age of 42. During his final year in the pros, his home run percentage was the best of his career, a stellar 9.4. He even hit a home run during his final at-bat before retirement in 1960. He then became a manager for the Washington Senators. While his perfectionism rendered him temperamentally ill-suited for the job, it still produced amazing results. His attitude seemed to be, I got my 10,000 hours, and I'm going to be sure you do too. He was convinced that playing golf messed up hitting technique and fined players $1,000 for being on the greens during the baseball season. He launched marathon batting practices, set up a curfew, limited alcohol consumption, tried to get them to take naps before night games, and even did his best to keep the team celibate. Batters who couldn't remember the pitching styles of opponents were treated to Williams's famous temper. But this also paid off. Hits went up, strikeouts went down, and attendance at games soared. The team emerged with their best record in 24 years. The same sports writers he loathed, and who loathed him back, had no choice but to name him American League Manager of the Year. Perfectionism aside, one cannot work 24-7. We all need rest. A hobby. Something approximating work-life balance. Ted Williams loved to go fishing. A famously placid, relaxing sport. Um, no, not in this case. He was a driven achiever even when supposedly taking it easy. A friend said, when he was pulling on a fish, he would use more expletives in one sentence than I'd ever heard in my life. It was almost poetic. It was lyrical, like him singing a song. He didn't do it vindictively or in anger. He was just being himself, always trying to top himself. And yes, he earned his way into the National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, as well as the International Game Fish Association Hall of Fame. In 1999, the Sporting News put him as eighth on their list of best 100 greatest baseball players. 
He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George H.W. Bush in 1991. Ted Williams was great because he never stopped working. Does all this hard work really produce extreme success? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Our expert on great achievers, Dean Keith Simonton, provides a daunting formula for eminence. People who wish to do so must organize their whole lives around a single enterprise. They must be monomaniacs, even megalomaniacs, about their pursuits. They must start early, labor continuously, and never give up the cause. Success is not for the lazy, procrastinating, or mercurial. Does that mean it's a good thing that I'm writing these lines at 3.25 a.m.? If you want it to hear you can make millions and be renowned by only working when you feel like it and not making sacrifices, well, just close the book now and go watch some no-money-down-real-estate infomercials. You've come to the wrong place. Still here? Good. Frank Barron, a renowned professor at UC Santa Cruz, said, Voluminous productivity is the rule and not the exception among the individuals who have made some noteworthy contributions. Even hairstyling mogul Vidal Sassoon once quipped, The only place where success comes before work is a dictionary. Yes, to be the very best you must be a little nuts in the effort department. Dean Keith Simonton sums it up. Those individuals with the highest total output will, on average, produce the most acclaimed contributions as well. The price law is a great illustration of just how important feverish work is. Take the number of top people in a field. To make the math easy, we'll just say it's 100. Then take the square root of that number, which in our example is 10. The price law says those 10 people will be responsible for 50% of the notable achievements in that field. 10 people out of 100 will produce half the stuff worth paying attention to. And Simonton notes that the price law holds for every major domain in the arts and sciences. But you're not a botanist or a painter, you say? Doesn't matter. In all professional jobs, you see a similar effect. The top 10% of workers produce 80% more than the average, and 700% more than the bottom 10%. And that requires hours. When Harvard professor John Cotter looked at top managers across various industries, he found that 60-plus hour weeks were not uncommon. And what did Stanford professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, whom we met in Chapter 2, mention first in his list of keys to corporate success? Energy and stamina. Because you're going to need it. Can you be productive at something without spending a ton of time at it? To a degree, of course. But assuming equal talent and efficiency, the person who spends more time wins. And the issue of ours seems to be the real distinguishing factor between the pretty good and the truly great. Yeah, being smart helps, but the threshold hypothesis shows that smarts ain't everything, especially when it comes to big breakthroughs. When you look at eminent people, the majority are smarter than average. Without an IQ of 120, very few people end up producing anything that will be groundbreaking and remembered in the history books. But the twist is that as long as you're past the 120 mark, many studies show more IQ points have little effect. What makes the difference? Not luck. It's all those hours. A Manhattan Project physicist IQ of 180 might be nice, but those 60 points don't make the difference that more hours will. 
some people do insane amounts of work and see nothing from it. By the time of his death, Robert Shields had produced a diary that was 37.5 million words long. He spent four hours a day recording everything from his blood pressure to the junk mail he received. He even woke up every two hours so he could detail his dreams. This didn't make him rich and didn't even garner him a Guinness Book of World Records listing. It just made him a crazy man with one of the most morbidly fascinating obituaries ever. Hours alone also aren't enough. Those hours need to be hard. You need to be pushing yourself to be better like Ted Williams. You've spent a lot of hours in your life driving, right? Are you ready to compete in NASCAR or Formula One? Probably not. Trying to improve isn't something we are doing in the vast majority of activities we engage in every day, including work. With results that may make you scared to go to the hospital, studies have shown that doctors and nurses don't get much better at their jobs over time. Without a rage to master, like you behind the wheel, they just do their thing, hour after hour, rather than push to become experts. As Michelangelo once said, If people knew how hard I work to achieve my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful after all. In Benjamin Bloom's classic study of top athletes, scientists, and artists, he found that one of the critical elements of a great mentor wasn't just secret knowledge and emotional support. It was pushing you harder. A great mentor's expectations and demands were constantly raised until they were at a point where the student was expected to do virtually all that was humanly possible. Research shows ambition alone is predictive of success, and motivation predicts career success better than intelligence, ability, or salary. Combine them with tons of hours and one thing's for certain. I sure don't want to be standing between you and your goals because I'll end up looking like a flattened Wild E. Coyote with tire tracks across my face. Ted Williams thought of nothing but hitting. He put in an astronomical number of hours, always trying to improve, and he became so successful that most boys of that generation dreamed of being him one day. And now you're wondering if success means a misery-inducing schedule along with a massive coronary by age 50. I've got a surprise for you. It can mean the exact opposite. In general, overwork is bad for you. It's correlated with reduced exercise, fewer visits to the doctor, and more smoking. Worse than that, a study entitled, To Your Happiness, Extra Hours of Labor Supply and Worker Well-Being, showed the success benefits often are outweighed by the negatives in terms of happiness and stress. To put a cherry on top, one of the top five regrets of people on their deathbed is, I wish I didn't work so hard. But things change when you find your job meaningful. I've mentioned the Terman study before, which followed people from youth all the way to the ends of their lives. Since this study allowed the researchers to see the big picture, what did they find in relation to hard work and a meaningful career? As the WSJ reports, those who stayed very involved in meaningful careers and worked the hardest lived the longest. Meaningful work means doing something that's A, important to you, and B, something you're good at. Plenty of research shows that if you do those things you're uniquely good at, psychologists call them signature strengths, they're some of the biggest happiness-boosting activities of all. A Gallup study reported, The more hours per day Americans get to use their strengths to do what they do best, the less likely they are to report experiencing worry, stress, anger, sadness, or physical pain. 
Imagine what life would be like if your job entailed using your signature strengths all day, every day. Of course you'd work long hours. Who'd want to go home? The problem here is the word work. We often use it to mean something bad. I hate having to do all this work. But we also use the word to mean job. When your job is fulfilling, it's not a bad thing. As Mark Twain wrote in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do. Play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. When you enjoy your work, you may still experience stress, but it's worth it in the end. Nobody is happy during mile 20 of a marathon. When you're halfway up Mount Everest, you wonder why you ever thought this was a good idea. Getting a PhD can take years of grueling, lonely effort. And yet these are the things people are the most proud of. The best example is having kids. Parenthood is certainly stressful. It can be difficult. For some people, it's a full-time job. But nobody seriously says, all that parenting is going to kill you. You should stop doing it. Sometimes it feels like it's going to kill you, sure, but it's the most meaningful thing in most people's lives. And the challenge just makes the rewards that much sweeter. A career you love is no different. If a meaningful career boosts longevity, what kills you sooner? Unemployment. Aaron Shore, a professor at McGill University, found that being jobless increases premature mortality by a whopping 63%, and pre-existing health issues made no difference, implying that it's not a correlation, it's very likely causation. This was no small study. It covered 40 years, 20 million people, and 15 countries. That 63% figure held no matter where the person lived. The unhappiness effects of unemployment might be even worse. Most of the research shows that your happiness level is fairly consistent throughout life. Getting married makes you happier, but in a few years most people return to their prior level of satisfaction. If your spouse passes away, you'll be sadder for an average of seven years, but after that, boom, back to baseline. However, there are a few things that can put a permanent dent in how often you smile, like suffering a serious illness or getting divorced or losing your job. In fact, happiness levels do not fully recover even after you get a new job. Being out of work can leave a mark that lasts a lifetime. What about retirement? That's the good unemployment, right? Wrong. Retiring is associated with cognitive decline, heart disease, and cancer. Those effects weren't due to aging, but because people stopped being active and engaged. It's not really fair to compare long hours against no job at all. However, having a job you dislike can be even worse than unemployment. According to a 2010 survey by Gallup, people who felt emotionally disconnected from their jobs enjoyed their lives less than people who had no jobs at all. And a study of Swedish workers showed monotonous work was associated with a higher rate of myocardial infarction. Yes, a boring job can kill you. Remember how I said that working too hard was one of the biggest regrets people had on their deathbed? Definitely true. But what was the number one regret? I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Career was a solid number two, right behind education and ahead of relationships. We spend so much of our time at work. I'm guessing the people who regretted working so much didn't like their jobs and that many of those who didn't live a life true to who they were picked the wrong careers. Challenging, 
meaningful work makes us happy and fulfilled. But then again, when it's meaningful, it's not really work, is it? Okay, the successful workaholics have presented their case. Let's hear what the less obsessed folks have to say about whether there's a downside to all this frantic labor. Note to lazy people, it's safe to start reading again. Albert Einstein and Charlie Chaplin attended the premiere of City Lights together. The crowd went wild for the two superstars, and Chaplin said to the great scientist, They cheer me because they all understand me, and they cheer you because no one understands you. How true. Ask people what Einstein did and they'll say, Relativity. Ask them what relativity is and you'll get an awkward silence. All most people understand about it is that you're supposed to know it's important. As Walter Isaacson said in his wonderful biography, Einstein devised a revolutionary quantum theory of light, helped prove the existence of atoms, explained Brownian motion, upended the concept of space and time, and produced what would become science's best-known equation. His work was so impactful that everyone knew he would one day win a Nobel Prize, but he had achieved so much that people weren't sure for which breathtaking accomplishment he would get it. When he finally did win the prize in 1921, ironically, he didn't get it for relativity theory. And the bulk of the work he was celebrated for he accomplished in one year, 1905, when he was 26 years old. Not bad for a guy who was rejected for military service because he had sweaty feet. Unlike Newton, Einstein was charming, committed to social justice, and had a family and children. But similar to his reclusive predecessor, he lived in a world of ideas in his own head. Obviously, he was a genius. But his real superpower was the incredible time and focus he put into his work. Though surrounded by fame, friends, and family, he still lived a life that was often cerebrally detached, the better to explore his ideas. This obviously paid off in terms of career success. It was a Faustian bargain, though Einstein did not pay the price. His family did. Isaacson said, one of his strengths as a thinker, if not as a parent, was that he had the ability and the inclination to tune out all distractions, a category that to him sometimes included his children and family. When they demanded his attention, he doubled down on his work. This strained his family to the breaking point. Einstein said, I treat my wife as an employee whom I cannot fire. And this was not nearly a barb thrown out in the heat of anger. When his marriage began to break down, he presented his wife with a contract that detailed what he expected of her if the relationship was to continue. Conditions A. You will make sure 1. That my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. 2. That I will receive my three meals regularly in my room. 3. That my bedroom and study are kept neat, and especially that my desk is left for my use only. B. You will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego 1. My sitting at home with you. 2. My going out or traveling with you. C. You will obey the following points in your relations with me. 1. You will not expect any intimacy from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. 2. You will stop talking to me if I request it. 3. You will leave my bedroom or study immediately, without protest, if I request it. D. You will undertake not to belittle me in front of our children, either through words or behavior. She reluctantly agreed, 
but unsurprisingly the marriage still fell apart due to his distance and the affairs he carried on with younger women, who did not make emotional demands of him. While he was an attentive father when his boys were young, as the years passed Einstein would spend more and more time in his head. After his divorce, he saw his children rarely, focusing more on his work. His son Edward struggled with mental illness and attempted suicide, eventually dying in a psychiatric hospital. Einstein had not visited him for more than three decades. His other son, Hans Albert, is quoted as saying, Probably the only project he ever gave up on was me. Hard work creates talent, and talent plus time creates success. But how much is too much? Did I mention what Ted Williams' obsessive work ethic and perfectionism did to his relationships? No? I'm sneaky like that. Well, sadly, it's a similar story to Einstein. Ted Williams's incredible ability came from the fact that he spent all his time focused on baseball, but his weakness was also that he spent all his time focused on baseball. Rob Kaufman, the son of Williams' late-life partner Louise Kaufman, said, He was totally lacking in social skills. He spent too much time in the locker room. He was intelligent, but he didn't learn any of the skills that his peers learned. Williams divorced three times. One woman he dated, Evelyn Turner, repeatedly refused his marriage proposals. She said she would be his wife only if he assured her she would come first in his life. Ted responded, It's baseball first, fishing second, and you third. When he fought with wife number three, Dolores Wedich, she threatened to write a sequel to Williams's biography titled, My Turn at Bat Was No Ball. Shelby Whitfield, a friend of Ted's, said, Williams was probably one of the worst people to be married to that you could imagine. He was no better as a father. Williams even admitted it. As a father, I struck out. I was never there. I was always gone. I had my commitments. I just didn't do the job. The hours on the field that brought him glory destroyed his relationship with his three children. He was not present for any of their births. When his daughter, Bobby Joe, would ask him about his childhood, he told her to read his autobiography. Though Williams had success as a team manager, the same pattern was visible in his relationships with the players he oversaw. Red Sox infielder Ted Lepsio said, He had a hard time understanding why guys like me couldn't hit better. I think he had a hard time relating to non-perfectionists. And as a perfectionist of the highest order, he wanted to control everything. When he couldn't, he would explode. Stories of his temper are legion and legendary. Williams had a rage to master everything in his life, but when things presented themselves that he couldn't control, like wives, children, and family, mastering wasn't an option. That left him with only rage. His temper was an intensifier, which you'll recall from Chapter 1. Wife number 3, Dolores, spoke of his anger. It was his best friend, because it gave him power to do things which saved him, which was important. If he had to swing the bat, and he was angry, that ball would fly. If he was fishing, and he was angry, that fly would just fly, and the fish didn't stand a chance. But in relationships, it was crippling. If Williams lost a chess match in a friendly family game, he'd throw the board across the room. As biographer Ben Bradley wrote, Ultimately, Dolores felt the source of Ted's rage was his inability to satisfy the perfectionist ambition that he set for himself. When he failed to meet his own expectations, no matter how innocuous the activity, he could snap. 
Satisfaction forever eluded him because of these constant towering expectations of himself and others. Teammate Jimmy Pearsall once asked him why he was so mad all the time. Williams responded, You know why? Because I've got to be good every day. You don't have to be. One time Williams returned to the dugout furious and critical of himself. He felt he should not have swung at that final pitch. He could not get over it. We've all been in a situation like this. You feel like you've made a mistake and you can't stop beating yourself up about it. But Williams had just hit a home run. A home run that had won the game. It didn't matter. As his teammates went crazy over the win, Williams stewed. He felt he could have done better. That attitude may bring incredible results, if not happiness, in a talent-driven contest like baseball. But it doesn't work with relationships. Sadly, his innate drive and long hours of practice only reinforced this perspective, and Williams could not turn it off. The intensifier that made him one of the greatest baseball players to ever live meant he would forever be at odds with the people who loved him most. As George Bernard Shaw said, The true artist will let his wife starve, his children go barefoot, his mother drudge for his living at seventy, sooner than work at anything but his art. And where was Mozart when his wife was giving birth to their first child? In the other room, composing, of course. The same is seen in doctors who are passionate about their jobs. A study of over 1,000 Dutch medical specialists showed the top reasons for burnout were interference of family life and perfectionism. Psychologist Richard Ryan says, One of the reasons for anxiety and depression in the high attainers is that they're not having good relationships. They're busy making money and attending to themselves, and that means there's less room in their lives for love and attention and caring and empathy and the things that truly count. This phenomenon of neglecting family for one's passion isn't the least bit new. The ancient Romans had an expression, libri aut liberi, which translates to books or children. If you're very serious about creating things, you sacrifice family. The issue of energy is critical as well. Creative workers not only spend less time with their spouse, but a study from the Academy of Management Journal found that the time they do spend is of lower quality. When they get home, their brains are pooped. There's no gas left in the tank to be an attentive partner. One study found people high in perfectionism were 33% less likely to have satisfying relationships. Some push the intensity of those hours to unnatural levels. The esteemed science journal, Nature, did an informal study of 1,400 of its readers. 20% had used drugs to increase focus and concentration, the most common being the stimulant Ritalin. In Mason Curry's analysis of the habits of geniuses, he also found a significant number used amphetamines, just like Paul Erdish. Sean Esteban McCabe of the University of Michigan analyzed American undergrads and reported 4.1% were doing the same. Excuse me while I refill my coffee. So having a calling one is obsessively passionate about can bring success and fulfillment, but it can also crowd out relationships, which are key to happiness. Harvard researcher Sean Aker echoed this, The people who survive stress the best are the ones who actually increase their social investments in the middle of stress, which is the opposite of what most of us do. Turns out that social connection is the greatest predictor of happiness we have when I run them in my studies. What was number four in that list of biggest regrets of the dying? I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Unchecked. Getting those 10,000 hours of deliberate practice can lead to a dark place. Howard Gardner, 
professor at the Harvard School of Graduate Education, studied a number of eminent creators like Picasso and Freud. My study reveals that, in one way or another, each of the creators became embedded in some kind of a bargain, deal, or Faustian arrangement, executed as a means of ensuring the preservation of his or her unusual gifts. In general, the creators were so caught up in the pursuit of their work mission that they sacrificed all, especially the possibility of a rounded personal existence. In an interview, chess legend Bobby Fischer said almost exactly that. When a reporter asked what his life would have been like had he not been so obsessed with chess, Fischer replied, Well, it would have been better, you know. A little more balanced. A little more rounded. Franz Kafka went even further. What will be my fate as a writer is very simple. My talent for portraying my dreamlike inner life has thrust all other matters into the background. My life has dwindled dreadfully, nor will it cease to dwindle. Nothing else will ever satisfy me. The same issue of opportunity over cost that we looked at in Chapter 2 with Spencer Glendon and Peter Drucker applies here. Every hour at work is an hour you're not with friends and family. Is this really necessary to be successful at a global scale? Sadly, it may be. The paper, Why Productivity Fades with Age, The Crime-Genius Connection, shows that, at least with men, marriage has a noticeably negative effect on output among scientists, authors, jazz musicians, painters, and even criminals. The author of the study, Satoshi Kanazawa, writes, Scientists rather quickly desist after their marriage, while unmarried scientists continue to make great scientific contributions later in their lives. All of this is if you have your ultimate dream job. What if you don't? Which is true for most of us. I'm sure this comes as no surprise, but working like crazy when you're not obsessively passionate has some serious negative effects. In Japan, this has gotten completely out of hand. It is not unheard of for people to literally die from overwork. The problem has become so prevalent, the Japanese have a name for it. Koroshi. Far from a rare curiosity, the term was added to the dictionary in 2002. It has become such a problem that it is legally recognized, and the government began tracking it in 1987. The number of people dying from Koroshi in Japan is comparable to the number of traffic fatalities. The deaths are usually directly attributable to heart attack or stroke, but suicide is not unheard of, and that even garnered its own name. Koroji Satsu. Insurance companies have repeatedly paid out on lawsuits regarding the problem, with families receiving the equivalent of more than a million dollars in damages. When surveyed, 90% of Japanese workers weren't even familiar with the concept of work-life balance. To stem the problem, some offices now play a recorded message at the end of the workday, basically telling employees, Go home. Most of us will never take overwork to the level of heart attack or suicide. Ah, uh, we'll just settle for making ourselves utterly miserable. We commonly refer to the problem as burnout. But what's fascinating is that psychologists have realized that burnout isn't just an acute overdose of stress. It's pretty much plain old clinical depression. The paper, Comparative Symptomatology of Burnout and Depression, said, Our findings do not support the view hypothesizing that burnout and depression are separate entities. We all experience stress, and most of us bounce back from it fine after a break. Christina Maslach, one of the leading researchers in the field, says true burnout occurs when we're not right for the job we're in. 
That's also why passionate people may destroy their relationships or physically pass out from exhaustion, but not burn out the frazzled way the average worker might. Researchers Carrie Chernis and David Kranz found that burnout was virtually absent in monasteries, Montessori schools, and religious care centers where people consider their work as a calling rather than merely a job. But when you're not clicking with your role, you're overloaded, and your duties aren't aligned with your expectations or values, it's not merely the stress that gets to you. You actually experience a perspective shift. You feel you can't make progress, you disengage, and you eventually become cynical and pessimistic. So burnout is the flip side of grit. When we talked about Navy SEAL James Waters and the research of Martin Seligman, we saw that resilience often comes from optimism. Burnout is the result of a pessimistic attitude toward your job. This isn't getting me anywhere. I can't handle this. It's never going to get any better. Some may think you just need to tough it out, but when you're pessimistic and miserable, it's very hard to achieve success. As Julia Bohm and Sonia Lubomirsky published in the Journal of Career Assessment, success does not lead to happiness as often as happiness leads to success. Just as optimism keeps you going, burnout creates a pessimistic downward spiral where it's hard to fulfill your duties because it all seems futile. In the end, you might find yourself hoping for Koroshi. What's the fix for all this? Many think getting that big raise is going to make it all worth it, but they're wrong. The study, How Do Objective and Subjective Career Success Interrelate Over Time, showed that pay doesn't increase job satisfaction. More money doesn't make a job a better fit. Therefore, it's unlikely to reduce burnout. If you're overworked in a job that isn't right for you, it may be time to make a change. If you're obsessively pursuing a career you're passionate about, the solution there won't surprise you too much either. You need time for relationships. When the American Medical Association surveyed top doctors to find out how they avoided burnout, one of the key things mentioned was sharing issues with family and friends. We all have limits, and for a well-rounded life, we need both a career that suits us as well as supportive loved ones. As writer Sam Harris said in an interview with The Atlantic, it's probably true that certain human accomplishments depend upon people's neurotic needs for achievement or their lust for money or power. A lot of art comes from a place of being captivated by selfish illusions. And if a person were to permanently dispel the illusion of the self, he might not write great novels or start the next Apple. Buddhahood might be incompatible with being the next Nabokov or Steve Jobs. Luckily, no one has ever had to choose between becoming a great artist or entrepreneur or the next Buddha. The relevant question for me is how neurotic and unhappy and self-deceived do we have to be while living productive lives? I think the general answer is far less than most of us are. So while obsessive work may be necessary for the heights of success, it doesn't lead to a fulfilling, balanced life. That raises other questions. If we do want to achieve success and don't want to be cut off from friends and family or suffer the depression of burnout, can less really be more? Can we have fun and be successful? Or is that just a pipe dream? There was nothing more the Japanese fighters could do. They were being roundly beaten at their own game, and it was embarrassing. The Gracie family of Brazil had taken the grappling style of jiu-jitsu to an all-new level, and in the exploding sport of mixed martial arts, their names had become synonymous with victory. Jiu-jitsu is a Japanese art, a Japanese word even, 
but it had been elevated to seeming perfection by another nation on the other side of the world. The Gracies learned Japanese jiu-jitsu early in the 20th century and evolved it in the back alleys of Rio de Janeiro through street fights and later in no-rules competitions. They took the art and made it a science. Ever since their first Ultimate Fighting Championship, in which Royce Gracie devastated three opponents in a single night, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu had caused a paradigm shift in martial arts. There was no debate. Anyone wanting to compete in MMA had to know Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, or they would be defeated by it. That included fighters from the very nation that had invented Jiu-Jitsu. Japan has always loved fighting sports. K-1 kickboxing events filled football-sized stadiums. When Pride FC launched in 1997 as the nation's premier mixed martial arts organization, it too garnered huge audiences. But many of the Japanese fighters who competed in it were seen as sacrificial offerings to foreign fighters like the Gracies. They were derided as tomato cans, because at the end of the match, battered, they would be leaking red the way a damaged container of sauce might. In this new world of mixed martial arts, Japan desperately wanted to regain its storied fighting history, but there seemed to be no way to outdo the Gracies. Members of that family had literally been rolling on grappling mats since before they could walk. Just working more or working harder would not be enough. Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was a drug-resistant virus infecting all of martial arts. Was there an antidote that could restore the fighting honor of Japan? Yes, but it would come from the most unlikely of places. No one questioned the talent of Kazushi Sakuraba. They did, however, question his sanity. Often called Saku for short, he wasn't a classically trained martial artist. He was a professional wrestler. His style of catch wrestling is a hybrid grappling form created in the 1800s that gained attention in carnivals and fairs. In something that resembles a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer story set in the world of fighting, a pro wrestler whose style was something out of a circus would become Japan's MMA White Knight. One of the most difficult challenges in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is called passing the guard. It involves getting past your opponent's attempts to control you with their legs so you can move to a more dominant position on the mat. This is often a grueling back-and-forth chess match as fighters struggle for advantage. How did Saku pass the guard? By doing a cartwheel. Flying over the defenses of his opponent, he looked more like Spider-Man than an MMA fighter. And it worked. This guy wasn't from the Shaolin Temple more like Ringling Bros. Clown College. Before his fights, fans would be on edge. They knew they'd get a great fight, but the anticipation was more about, what's this awesome, crazy guy going to do next? Not only was Saku's innovative fighting style electrifying, but from start to finish, he was a consummate showman. The Japanese media had often referred to one of his opponents, fighter Kevin Randleman, as Donkey Kong. So Saku entered the ring for their fight dressed as Mario. Saku also did something else few fighters ever did during a fight. He smiled. There was no doubt to anyone watching that this guy was having fun. Though he clearly took his training very seriously, he never took himself all that seriously. He was also doing something else. Winning. Though frequently competing against fighters who outweighed him by as much as 50 pounds, Saku, after his first appearance in the UFC, went undefeated for 11 fights. Only one question remained. Could he possibly beat a Gracie? Other than by decision, no member of the Gracie family had lost a professional fight in decades. On November 21, 1999, Saku caught Royler Gracie in a Kimura armlock, and the proud member of the Gracie family refused to tap out in submission. But when Royler's arm was clearly dislocated, 
The referee intervened to stop the bout. Saku had won. This sent a shockwave through the MMA community. A Gracie had been defeated, and it was the crazy clown from pro wrestling who had done it. In just over a year, Kazushi Sakuraba brought down four top fighters from the first family of martial arts, which garnered him another nickname, the Gracie Hunter. After defeating Royce, Helio Gracie, the patriarch of the family, extended a hand to Sakuraba, who happily shook it and bowed. The proud Brazilian family recognized a more than worthy opponent. Japanese fighters had regained their honor. Kazushi Sakuraba's record includes victories over seven UFC champions. The former pro wrestler is regarded as Japan's greatest mixed martial artist. And I doubt any fighter has had as much fun in the ring. The new apex predator of mixed martial arts wasn't someone who did Gracie Jiu-Jitsu better than the Gracies. He was a lunatic who dyed his hair orange and did cartwheels in the ring. Sakuraba didn't win solely by doing more or working harder. Sometimes more is not the answer. Sometimes more isn't even possible. Sometimes we need to relax and have fun, and maybe act a little bit crazy, to be at our best. Scientists surveyed 254 adult students on playfulness, and then looked at their transcripts. Guess what? A playful attitude was associated with better grades. It actually went further than that. Playful students more often read class material that wasn't even required. They were curious and motivated. Other research has found a connection between amount of recess time for kids and academic performance. More playing equals more learning. Fun helps us bond with others not only in our personal lives, but also at the office. After all, how well do you know someone if you've never shared a laugh with them? When William Hampus did a study of 98 students, he found a significant relationship between humor and trust. We're more likely to have faith in the people we joke around with. But you can't be focused on fun if you're the boss, right? Wrong. You'd better think about everyone having a good time if you're trying to recruit top talent. A study from the Journal of Leadership and Organizational Studies found that workplace fun was a stronger predictor of applicant attraction than compensation and opportunities for advancement. Yeah, that means exactly what you think. Money and promotions weren't nearly as important to people as working somewhere fun. You still need to work long hours, right? More hours means more results. Or does it? Let's examine the best of the best, or the worst of the worst. Depends on how you look at it, really. Management consulting is legendary for its long hours and demanding workloads. 80-hour weeks are not uncommon. There's tons of travel and constant email checking, and many suffer from death by PowerPoint. Leslie Perlow and Jessica Porter wanted to see what would happen if a top consulting firm did the absolutely unthinkable. They gave their employees a consistent day off from work. What a concept. For the manic pace of employees at the Boston Consulting Group, this was unthinkable. Sure, you get time off. But if an emergency comes up, and there's always an emergency, we need you. So what Perlow calls predictable time off wasn't really an option. When she first raised the option with BCG, the first partner she talked to said no. It took six months to find another partner at the firm who was willing to give this insane idea a shot. I'm sure you're not shocked that the employees like this. Compared to workers under the old system, consultants who got the predictable time off were 23% more likely to say they were satisfied with their jobs, and 24% more likely to say they were excited to go to work in the morning. Across a range of metrics, they felt better about their jobs and lives and were more likely to stay at the company. Of course, 
Time off feels good. But that wasn't the only result. The consultants were also 11% more likely to say they were providing better service to their clients. The clients confirmed this. Ratings of the teams with predictable time off were, at worst, the same as the non-PTO teams and, at best, far better than they had been. BCG got the message. Four years later, 86% of the teams in the firm's Northeast divisions were giving predictable time off a shot. Employees were working less, and the company was getting better results. So there's clearly a limit for the average employee. When quantity of work gets too high, quality suffers, and quality of life suffers for workers. 39% of Americans work 50 or more hours a week, and 18% work 60 or more, according to a 2014 Gallup poll. What's the added benefit of all those extra hours? Research from Stanford says close to nothing. Productivity declines so steeply after 55 hours that someone who puts in 70 hours produces nothing more with those extra 15 hours. All they are creating is stress. A paper from the Journal of Socioeconomics found that the happiness decrease that overtime stress produces is bigger than the happiness boost that extra overtime pay produces. The math doesn't work. How else is fun and relaxation related to success? Well, these days it seems every company is screaming about innovation. They say they need creativity, but do all these hours at the office lead to new ideas? Nope. Study after study shows that creativity comes from being relaxed, not stressed and overworked. In fact, you're engaging in your prime creative time long before you get to the office. Most people come up with their best ideas in the shower. Scott Barry Kaufman of the University of Pennsylvania found that 72% of people have new ideas in the shower, which is far more often than when they're at work. Why are showers so powerful? They're relaxing. Remember, Archimedes didn't have his eureka moment at the office. He was enjoying a nice warm bath at the time. The go-go-go environment of many modern workplaces is downright antithetical to creative thinking. Harvard's Teresa Amabile found that under high levels of time pressure, you're 45% less likely to come up with that creative solution. All the stress instead creates what she calls a pressure hangover. Your muse exits the building and may not come back for days. To really be creative, you need to step out of that hyper-focused state of tension and let your mind wander. Researchers speculate that daydreaming is actually akin to problem-solving. It uses the same areas of the brain engaged when you're working on a puzzle. People whose minds wander more have been shown to be better problem-solvers. Speaking of downtime, you and I need to have a heart-to-heart about that daily block of big downtime. Sleep. I'm sure I'm not the first to mention that it's important for a whole bevy of reasons, but I do promise to be the most annoying. Research shows that not getting enough shut-eye makes you out-and-out dumber. John Medina, professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, explains, Take an A student used to scoring in the top 10% of virtually anything she does. One study showed that if she gets just under 7 hours of sleep on weekdays and about 40 minutes more on weekends, she will begin to score in the bottom 9% of non-sleep-deprived individuals. And you don't fully recover that brain power as fast as you might think. A 2008 study in Stockholm showed that even after a week of normal sleep, people still weren't 100% after just a few 5-hour nights. Sleep has been shown to affect decision-making, ethics, your health, and how much time you pointlessly screw around on the Internet. Research also shows beauty sleep is real. When scientists had subjects look at photos of people before and after sleep deprivation, 
The shots in which they were tired were consistently rated as less attractive. I know, I know. You think you're fine. No, you're not. You're like a drunk shouting they're okay to drive. That's the really sneaky thing about sleep deprivation. You're not necessarily aware of it. Just because you don't feel tired doesn't mean you're well-rested and performing optimally. Your sleepy gauge just isn't that well-calibrated, my friend. The New York Times reported on the work of University of Pennsylvania sleep researcher David Dingus. After two weeks of four hours of sleep a night, test subjects said they were tired but okay. Then the researchers gave them a battery of tests, and it turned out their brains were jello. Dingus also found that after two weeks of six hours a night, they were effectively drunk. How much sleep does the average American get per night? Gallup says it's 6.8 hours. So you're probably pretty wasted as you read this. Now, there are people who don't need more than a few hours of sleep a night, but you are almost certainly not one of them. Short sleepers make up only 1-3% to of the population. They're actually hard to study because this is one of the few disorders nobody ever goes to a hospital complaining about. You know the morning people who are almost pathologically chipper and upbeat? Short sleepers are like that all the time. Researchers call it behaviorally activated. It's believed they may have subclinical hypomania, the same kind of disorder we talked about in Chapter 1. Again, that's like mania but with the volume turned way down. They're not crazy, just optimistic, full of pep, and very emotionally resilient. The disorder runs in families and is believed to be caused by a mutation of the HDEC2 gene. So, if you don't have that genetic issue, no, you're not a short sleeper. You're just too tired to realize how tired you are. What happens when you and I try to emulate these people? Let's look at the most extreme of cases, because, frankly, that's more fun. Randy Gardner set the record for staying awake by remaining conscious for over 11 days. Researchers documented the whole thing and found that he experienced no long-lasting health issues and was back to normal after finally getting some sleep. That said, during the event, his brain completely went haywire. After a while, his speech slurred. He hallucinated. He had trouble focusing his eyes, and for a short time he came to believe he was an African-American football player, despite being a Caucasian teenager. The Guinness Book doesn't even have a category for sleep deprivation anymore because of how much it screws you up. Don't try this at home, kids. Sleep doesn't just affect how tired you are or how clearly you think. It also affects your emotions. You and I have had days when we're tired and cranky, but it goes deeper than that, down to the neuroscience level. When we're exhausted, our brains can't help but focus on the negative. Remember the amygdala? That part of the brain wasn't working in the woman who couldn't feel fear. Research by Matthew Walker at the University of California at Berkeley shows that sleep deprivation puts us in a state that's almost the opposite of that woman. The world gets more negative. When students were kept awake for 35 hours, fMRI analysis showed their amygdala response to bad things shot up to 60% higher than people who had slept normally. When we get our 8 hours, our brains reset and we are on a more even keel. Without shut-eye, our brains overreact to bad stuff. Plain and simple, when you're tired, it's harder to stay happy. Your mood in the morning also affects how you perform the entire day. How you sleep, as well as a stressful commute, can influence your productivity from the moment you hit the office until the second you leave for the evening. A study from Wharton showed that your mood in the morning influences how you react to events. Is your co-worker's error a minor annoyance or an utter disaster? By the same token, 
If the boss comes into the office looking angry, you may want to wait until tomorrow to ask for that raise. Those early hours are important for another reason. They're usually when you're most productive. When I spoke to Duke professor Dan Ariely, he said, It turns out that most people are productive in the first two hours of the morning, not immediately after waking. But if you get up at 7, you'll be most productive from around from 8 to 10.30. Don't waste them being exhausted and cranky. To think about this another way, do you accomplish more in three hours when you're sleep-deprived or in one hour when you feel energetic, optimistic, and engaged? Ten hours of work when you're exhausted, cranky, and distracted might be far less productive than three hours when you're in the zone. So why not focus less on hours and more on doing what it takes to make sure you're at your best? Okay, time for scared straight sleep edition. British researchers looked at white-collar workers who normally slept six to eight hours a night, but subsequently slept less. Then the researchers followed up with them more than a decade later. What was the result? A lot more dead people. The study reported, There is good evidence that participants whose sleep decreased from six, seven, or eight hours per night were at higher risk of all-cause and cardiovascular mortality than those who retained the same sleep duration across the phases. So, why aren't we getting enough sack time? We all like sleep. Of course, the answer is work. If you didn't know I was going to say that, please take a nap right now. University of Pennsylvania Medical School researcher Matthias Basner said, The evidence that time spent working was the most prominent sleep thief was overwhelming. It was evident across all sociodemographic strata, and no matter how we approach the question. And nothing beats video game programmer Evan Robinson's insight on what's happening here. To paraphrase, Why is it that companies that wouldn't think twice about firing you for being drunk on the job don't mind creating conditions that effectively make you drunk on the job. You're not a computer that can run 24-7 without a hitch. You need rest. But you'll be punished for sleeping on the job. Meanwhile, sleeping on the job turns out to be a really good idea. The evidence for naps improving performance is pretty overwhelming. Now, if we're going to talk about naps, we have to talk about astronauts. To sleep properly, you're dependent on cues from your environment. When it's bright out, your brain thinks it should be awake. When it's dark out, ready by. This creates a whole heck of a lot of grief for astronauts, because when you're not on planet Earth, these cues can get all out of whack. You and I experience the sun coming up once a day. In the same 24 hours, astronauts can see that happen a dozen times. So NASA has had to do a lot of research on sleep, because when astronauts are too tired to do their jobs correctly, the results can be deadly. They developed the Fatigue Countermeasures Program, which is what a multi-billion dollar government agency has to call a nap. A study by the space agency showed naps made the pilots sharper. The results clearly demonstrate that a 40-minute planned in-flight rest period significantly improved performance and physiological alertness in long-haul flight operations. We talked about how being sleep-deprived made it harder to be happy. Guess what? Taking a 90-minute nap reversed the effect. Not only did a siesta reduce the brain's overactive response to negative stuff, it also increased the response to good things. How else does resting and having some fun help? Naps are short, so let's go big. Vacations. A German study of teachers showed that taking a two-week vacation increased work engagement and decreased burnout for up to a month. Vacations refill your gas tank. Feel free to tear this page out and put it on your boss's desk. 
Now, this doesn't mean you can justify overwork and depriving yourself of sleep just because you have a trip on the calendar. The researchers found that too much stress after coming back to work made the effects last less than a month. You're emptying the gas tank again. Meanwhile, having more fun after you return home increased how long the vacation helped. We need fun. We need rest. They increase our chances of success and they benefit your employer as well. Hard work doesn't necessarily mean good work. If a lot of surfing on the internet has taught us anything, it's that quantity often doesn't mean quality. Don't do more work if you can do better work. You want to keep in mind that 80 over 20 perspective Peter Drucker talked about and do things that move the needle instead of spending all your time shuffling emails. Author Tony Schwartz says, Energy, not time, is the fundamental currency of high performance. It's a qualitative lens instead of a quantitative one. All hours are not created equal. We're not machines, and the time model is a machine model. Our job isn't to be a machine. It's to give the machines something brilliant to do. We've heard from both sides. Yes, passionate obsessives like Ted Williams work like crazy and see great results, but they often pay the price in terms of relationships. Those of us who aren't in our dream jobs have far more to lose and less to gain from long hours. Nobody wants to be the next Koroshi statistic. Having fun, getting sleep, and taking vacations may take time away from work, but can more than make up for it in terms of quality and engagement. So, why is the work-life balance question such a dilemma? It didn't seem to be such an issue in the past. Or was it? What's the real problem here, and how do we fix it? It turns out the world has changed. There has been a real shift. But there is something you can do about it. To better illustrate this, we really should talk about Spider-Man. Peter Parker was exhausted again. He was tired pretty much all the time lately. While fighting crime can certainly be draining, his superpowers had always defended him against this type of exhaustion. But something was different now. In his adventures as Spider-Man, Parker had found a new costume. Instead of his classic blue and red duds, this outfit was black and white. Not only did it look really cool, but it augmented his powers. The costume could perfectly mimic any type of clothing, so he never had to cover it up. Nice feature when you have a secret identity. It also provided him with a near-inexhaustible supply of stronger webbing. Again, good to have when you're a web-slinging crime fighter. But since he'd gotten it, he was tired. All the time. Of course, it couldn't be the costume. It was just fabric, after all. Until one night, Peter Parker took the outfit off and collapsed into bed, quickly falling asleep. And then the costume moved. It crept back onto his body, covering him once again. It stood him up. And out the window they went, swinging from web to web, Parker still asleep inside its confines the whole time. The next day, Peter woke up, exhausted again but still not understanding why. He knew he had to do something. Peter sought the help of Reed Richards, leader of the Fantastic Four and a great scientist. Richards ran some tests and had very disturbing news. The new costume was not a costume, and it certainly was not made of fabric. It was alive. Biologically, it was a symbiote, like a parasite. It was quite intelligent, and it had motives of its own. It was feeding off Spider-Man's superpowers and attempting to fuse with Peter, permanently. He would become part of it. It would not live to serve him. He would live to serve it. But there was a bigger problem. Not only did Peter now know the truth, it knew that he knew, and he couldn't get the symbiote off him. 
We'll stop there for a second. I know what some of you are thinking. Why is this guy rambling on about superhero costumes? Sorry, I'll get concrete for the non-comic fans. When you first got your job, did it feel like a great opportunity? Did it offer you salary and benefits that seemed impressive and beneficial? But on your path to success, did you find it was draining you? That you were tired all the time? Did it have you working at night, feeding it when you should be sleeping? Did it seem far more like you were becoming part of it than it was becoming part of you? Did you fight to maintain your independence but realize you couldn't get it off you no matter how hard you tried? Yeah, exactly. I'll be your Reed Richards here. You may not have a job. You may have a symbiote. And now, Spider-Man or Spider-Woman, we need to find a way to fight back. Who understands better than anyone the pressures the world puts on us? How strapped for time you and I have become? How impatient we've been forced to be? Elevator designers. Author James Gleick notes that every nine days or so, the products of the Otis Elevator Company lift the population of the Earth. And riders want everything faster. They want the elevator to come faster. They want it to go faster. They want the doors to open faster. Elevator designers have tried all sorts of solutions to deal with our endless frustration with any delay. Algorithms allow the lifts to anticipate demand and minimize wait time. Mitsubishi created one that rises as fast as a plane, over 40 feet a second, but we're still tapping our feet and rolling our eyes. Not fast enough. They've realized we can wait about 15 seconds on average. At 40 seconds, we start clenching our fists. When surveyed, people who had to wait two minutes report it as ten minutes. So they've tried tricking us. Those mirrored elevator lobbies? That's not elegant design. Those mirrors are there because when we can stare at ourselves, we pay less attention to how long the wait time is, and complaints drop. But it's no better once we get inside. The designers call it door dwell, how long before the doors close. It's usually under four seconds. Doesn't matter, not fast enough. What's consistently the button that gets hit so much that the paint is wearing off? Gleet confirms it's door close. Which brings our conversation to work-life balance. Have we always been this strapped for time? Did our parents and grandparents have this same stretch-too-thin feeling? In the ten years from 1986 to 1996, work-life balance was mentioned in the media 32 times. In 2007 alone, it was mentioned 1,674 times. The times, they are changing. For one thing, people are working more hours. When Harvard Business Review surveyed over 1,500 people earning salaries in the top 6% of Americans, they found 35% worked over 60 hours a week, and 10% put in a colossal 80-plus hours at the office. Of college-educated men with a full-time job in the United States, 22.2% worked 50-hour weeks in 1980. By 2001, it was 30.5%. This explains why so many of us may feel money-rich, time-poor. Then again, a lot of us feel money-poor, time-poor, too. Of course, all those hours need to come from somewhere. When HBR talked to those top 6% of earners working 60 or more hours a week, they found... More than 69% believe they would be healthier if they worked less extremely. 58% think their work gets in the way of strong relationships with their children. 46% think it gets in the way of good relationships with their spouses. And 50% say their jobs make it impossible to have a satisfying sex life. 
as you might imagine, that has big effects on happiness. Most studies in the past have shown adults to be happier than younger people. Not anymore. Since 2010, people under 30 are happier than previous generations of young people. But people over 30 aren't as happy as people in their age group used to be. Why might this be? Researcher Jean Twang explained, American culture has increasingly emphasized high expectations and following your dreams, things that feel good when you're young. However, the average mature adult has realized that their dreams might not be fulfilled, and less happiness is the inevitable result. Mature adults in previous eras might not have expected so much, but expectations are now so high they can't be met. Another study showed that between 1976 and 2000, high school seniors' ambitions and expectations rose to absurd levels and were continuing to grow with time. A little bit of math and, yep, they're the disappointed adults now. In the words of the great philosopher Tyler Durden, We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. What's going on? In the modern era, the standards of success have gotten absurd. They're not difficult to reach. They're impossible. TV shows you 20-something Silicon Valley billionaires. Think you're good at something? There's someone on the Internet who is better, works less, and is happier. They have nice teeth, too. For most of human existence, when we looked around us, there were one or two hundred people in our tribe, and we could be the best at something. We could stand out and be special and valuable. Now our context is a global tribe of seven-plus billion. There's always someone better to compare yourself to, and the media is always reporting on these people, which raises the standards just when you think you may be close to reaching them. If these mental expectations weren't bad enough, the modern world has actually made things more competitive. The talent market is global, which means if you can't hack it, companies don't sweat it. Someone on the other side of the planet certainly can. Computers make things more efficient, requiring fewer people, and the global talent market offers ten times as many applicants for every spot. The world says, more, 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 and so we do. Jay Walker Smith of Yanklevich Partners told the Wall Street Journal, Right now, there's no aspiration to be middle class. Everyone wants to be at the top. We probably have far more now than we ever had in the past, but we're probably not much happier. And instinctively, we think the problem can still be fixed by more. More money, more food, more things. Just more. We're not even sure what we need more of, but whatever we have now sure as hell isn't doing it. So turn it up to eleven, Bertha. This isn't an anti-capitalist rant or your grandfather saying, you kids don't appreciate anything. It's another example of our instincts gone awry. The problem is that in the quest for what makes me feel good, there's no finish line. It's a pie-eating contest, and first prize is more pie. These expectations make it harder to achieve the goals we naturally inherit from our surroundings. But that's not the worst part. Today's world, it's all our fault. Or at least it feels like it. We love choices, and the 21st century has given us nearly infinite choices. With technology, we now always have the choice to be working. The office doors don't close at 5 p.m. anymore. Every minute we spend with friends or playing with our kids is a minute we could be working. So every moment is a decision. That decision didn't exist in the past. But having it in the back of our heads all the time is enormously stressful. When I spoke to Swarthmore College professor Barry Schwartz, who has studied the problems inherent in choice and happiness, 
He said, These days, when you come home, your work comes with you. In fact, no matter where you go, your work comes with you. You're at a ball game. Your work is in your pocket, right? What that means is not necessarily you want to work all the time, but you have to make a decision not to work. There's no constraint. Should I play with my kid or should I answer these emails? That was not an issue 30 years ago. You're home. Of course you play with your kid. No decision. Now there's a decision to be made. Technology has increased choices dramatically in good and bad ways. Remember that study of the top 6% of earners? 72% said that technology helps them do their jobs well. 59% said that it lengthens their working day. And 64% noted its encroachment on family time. During Leslie Perlow's research, one executive looked at his smartphone and said, I love the thing, and I hate it at the same time. The reason I love it is that it gives me so much power, and the reason I hate it is that it has so much power over me. Barry Schwartz explains that when the world doesn't give you much choice and things don't work out the way you want, it's the world's fault. What else could you have done? But when you have 100 options and you don't choose well, the burden shifts because you could have picked better. Here's the problem. We love having choices. We hate making choices. Having choices means having possibilities. Making choices means losing possibilities. And having so many choices increases the chance of regret. When work is always a choice, everything is a trade-off. More time working means less time with your friends, spouse, or kids. And if you choose wrong, it's your fault, making choices even more stressful. We work harder but feel worse because everything is being judged constantly. In his book, Over Success, Jim Rubens describes a study showing the effects this is having on us. A survey of 2,300 consumers earning $50,000 and up found the group highly aspirational and stressed, disconnected, and anxious. Fewer than 4 in 10 respondents reported that they feel like a part of my community, have the right balance in my life, or have a lot of close friends. Only 3 in 10 were happy with their personal appearance, and only 18% were happy in their romantic relationships. In 2008, 52% of people said they'd lain awake at night due to stress, 40% said their stress levels made them want to cry. One in three women said that, on a 10-point scale, they'd peg their stress level at 8, 9, or 10. It hits family time just as hard. Between the years 1980 and 1997, the number of household conversations dropped by 100%. Yes, 100%. The author of the study said that means that, in 1997, the average American family spent no time per week when talking as a family was the primary activity. He continued, In a 2000 national YMCA poll of a representative sample of American teens, 21% of teens rated not having enough time together with parents as their top concern. Okay, when the average surly American teenager's top concern is that they're not seeing their parents enough, there's definitely a problem. But when we feel such intense pressure to succeed both at work and at home, when there are always choices and it feels like it's our fault, we become desperate for a solution. Some of us set aside a facet of our lives so that other categories can thrive. Laura Nash and Howard Stevenson, the authors of Just Enough, and HBS professor Clay Christensen call this strategy sequencing. The attitude being, first I'll work a job I hate and make a lot of money, and then I'll have a family, and... Then, I'll do what I want and be happy. 
This doesn't work with relationships, though. Christensen rightly points out that by the time serious problems arise in those relationships, it often is too late to repair them. This means, almost paradoxically, that the time when it is most important to invest in building strong families and close friendships is when it appears, at the surface, as if it's not necessary. The authors of Just Enough confirmed this was true in their research with top executives. Yes, the group was quite accomplished career-wise, but behind the veil things sounded a lot more like Ted Williams and Albert Einstein. When we probed further, we found that many were not necessarily doing very well with their other targets, family, long-term business health, building a place to work that people actually value, developing a personal character that holds up when they get out of the public spotlight. We can't sequence relationships. They need regular, consistent attention. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, we are always getting ready to live, but never living. All right, enough doom and gloom. What can you do about this? You need a personal definition of success. Looking around you to see if you're succeeding is no longer a realistic option. Trying to be a relative success compared to others is dangerous. This means your level of effort and investment is determined by theirs, which keeps you running full speed all the time to keep up. Vaguely saying you want to be number one isn't remotely practical in a global competition where others are willing to go 24-7. We wanted options and flexibility. We got them. Now there are no boundaries. You can no longer look outside yourself to determine when to stop. The world will always tell you to just keep going. Brace yourself. I'm going to say something unpleasant. You have to make a decision. The world will not draw a line. You must. You need to ask, what do I want? Otherwise, you're only going to get what they want. Sorry to have to break this to you, but in today's world, having it all isn't possible when others determine the limits in each category. We used to rely on the world to tell us when we were done, but now the balance must come from you. Otherwise, you risk ending up with that number one regret of the dying, not having had the courage to live the life you wanted, and instead live the life others prescribed. Entrepreneur Ken Hakuda said, Success is something you will confront constantly in business. You will always be interpreting it against something, and that something should be your own goals and purpose. Barry Schwartz says we have to become choosers instead of pickers. A picker selects from the options available, leading us into false dichotomies created by the options we see in front of us. But a chooser is thoughtful enough to conclude that perhaps none of the available alternatives are satisfactory, and that if he or she wants the right alternative, he or she may have to create it. What combination of things makes you feel you have enough? What kills the need for more? What in the world of infinite, perpetually screaming options makes you lean back from the table and calmly say, I'm good, thanks? The authors of Just Enough did more than 60 interviews with very high-achieving professionals and surveyed 90 high-level executives. It turns out that most of these people didn't know the answer to these questions either. What was interesting was that they made consistent mistakes, and by looking at these mistakes, the researchers were able to get a handle on what we need in life and the best way to go about getting it. We all know that good life means more than money, but none of us is exactly sure what those other things are or how to get them. Let's face it, money's pretty easy to count, and it consistently brings some happiness for at least a short period of time. We all know love and friends and other stuff are important too, 
but they're a heck of a lot more complicated, and we can't just have them delivered to our house by Amazon Prime. Evaluating life by one metric turns out to be a key problem. We can't just use one yardstick to measure a successful life. In Just Enough, the authors refer to it as a collapsing strategy, collapsing everything into one barometer of whether or not our life is on track. Most of us find it easy to focus just on money and say, make the number go up. Convenient, simple, and dead wrong. As we saw, the insanely successful people the authors spoke to often felt they were missing out in another area of life, like their relationships. When we try to collapse everything into one metric, we inevitably get frustrated. The researchers realized multiple yardsticks for life were necessary. For instance, to have a good relationship with your family, you need to spend time with them. So hours spent together is one way to measure. But if that time is spent screaming at each other, that's not good either. So you need to measure quantity and quality. The study came up with four metrics that matter most. 1. Happiness. Having feelings of pleasure or contentment in and about your life. 2. Achievement. Achieving accomplishments that compare favorably against similar goals others have strived for. 3. Significance. Having a positive impact on people you care about. 4. Legacy. Establishing your values or accomplishments in ways that help others find future success. They also came up with a simple way to interpret the feelings these four need to provide in your life. 1. Happiness equals enjoying. 2. Achievement equals winning. 3. Significance equals counting to others. 4. Legacy equals extending. How much of each metric do you need to feel like a success? It can be intimidating to have to determine right now what balance of these four will provide what you need for the rest of your life. You don't need to go that far. What made you feel fulfilled at age 10 isn't true at 20 and won't be true at 80. Things will change and that's okay. Specifics will shift, but your values probably won't move nearly as much. You want to be contributing to the four needs on a regular basis. If you ignore any of them, you're headed for a collapsing strategy. Measuring life by one yardstick won't work. Delay any for too long and you're sequencing. A favorite quote of mine by Warren Buffett sums that up. I always worry about people who say, I'm going to do this for 10 years. I really don't like it very well. And then I'll do this. That's a lot like saving sex up for your old age. Not a very good idea. All this makes sense but we have to get to the crux of the work-life balance issue. Where do you draw the line? How do you know when you're doing enough winning and need to put more into the counting or extending categories? A good starting point is asking yourself, what's good enough? This attitude does not go over well with many people, and that's why we have the work-life balance problem in the first place. Saying only the best does not work in a world where options and competition are limitless. There used to be 26 different types of head-and-shoulders shampoo. Procter & Gamble said enough and cut it down to a slightly more reasonable 15, which produced a 10% bump in profits. Barry Schwartz says that what we often fail to realize is those constraints are welcome. They make decisions easier. They make life simpler. They make it not your fault. So they make us happier. We believe these constraints are ultimately worth the trade-off. 
Limitless freedom is alternately paralyzing and overwhelming. Plus, the only place we get good limits these days is when we determine them ourselves, based on our values. People handle having lots of choices in two ways, by maximizing or satisficing. Maximizing is exploring all the options, weighing them and trying to get the best. Satisficing is thinking about what you need and picking the first thing that fulfills those needs. Satisficing is living by good enough. In the modern world, maximizing is impossible and unfulfilling. Imagine exploring Amazon.com for the best book for you. Good luck evaluating every single one. You'd need years. But there's a deeper, less obvious problem. You might think that evaluating more possibilities would lead to objectively better results, and you'd be right. But it also leads to less subjective happiness with what you end up with. That's exactly what was found in a study done by Barry Schwartz and Sheila Ayengar. Students who were maximizers in trying to get the best job after graduation ended up better off. They got salaries that were 20% higher. But they ended up more unhappy with their jobs than satisficers did. Maximizers are on the treadmill of expectations and experience more regret because they always feel they could do better. Certainly, if we're comparing brain surgeons, maximizing might be a good idea. But in most areas of life, it just makes us unhappy. Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon who created the idea of maximizing and satisficing, said that in the end, when you calculate all factors of stress, results, and effort, satisficing is actually the method that maximizes. As Nash and Stevenson point out, you cannot maximize two things if they are trade-offs. It's the Spencer rule again. You have only 24 hours in a day and only so much energy. With multiple categories, you must draw a line. You cannot go all in on one and have a successful life all around. It all comes down to the question, what do I want? If you don't decide, the world will decide for you. As you saw, that's a treadmill of always chasing, never arriving. Ellen Galinsky did a study asking kids, if you were granted one wish and you only have one wish that could change the way your mother's or father's work affects your life, what would that wish be? most popular answer? They wish their parents were less stressed and less tired. Want work-life balance? Then remember what Barry Schwartz told me. Good enough is almost always good enough. Okay, so you need to think about the big four and reach good enough in each. You want to be a chooser, not a picker. You want to conquer the world. But you also want to get home by 6 p.m. and not work weekends. It feels impossible. Well, you know who successfully did the impossible? You know who actually conquered the world? Genghis Khan. How did he do it? He had a plan. Temujin was born in a terrible place at a terrible time. The steppes of Asia in the 12th century were like the Wild West, but worse. Survival alone was hard, and the fight for resources meant the nomadic tribes of the area just couldn't get along. Simple things like getting a wife was difficult because many men were so poor they could not afford to pay a dowry. So they kidnapped one. Seriously. Though kidnapping your future spouse was quite common, nobody was thrilled with having a daughter forcibly taken away. So this, along with theft and violence, produced a non-stop feuding between tribes. Hard times meant hard measures, and everyone was always reacting to the last injustice they suffered. 
Maybe you'd win a battle and shout, Hooray! Yes, that word comes from the Mongol language. But sure enough, next week someone would attack you in revenge. And you'd attack back, and this would go on forever and nobody got anywhere. Historically, we think of the Mongols as barbarians. And they pretty much were. Until Temujin. We are not sure when he was born. 1162 is a good guess. And we don't know where he was born. His youth was marked by the troubles of the times. His father was poisoned by an enemy tribe, and for a time he himself was enslaved. He never learned to read or write. He did not have the education or resources handed to him that Alexander the Great did. But he was the Mozart of military strategy. So good, in fact, that his enemies even accused him of using magic and hanging out with devils to achieve his victories. How did an illiterate young man in a horrible place during a horrible time conquer more territory in twenty-five years than the Romans did in four hundred? How did he build an empire that spanned over twelve million contiguous miles, and do it with an army that never grew larger than a hundred thousand men, which, as author Jack Weatherford explains, is a group that could comfortably fit into the larger sports stadiums of the modern era? Everyone else on this step was always reacting to whatever awful thing had recently been perpetrated on them. Temujin stepped outside of this vicious cycle. He did not merely react. He thought about what he wanted, and he made plans. First, he set out to unite the tribes of the steppe. He smashed the kinship structure that had kept the nomadic tribes caught in a cycle of feuding. He established a meritocracy, where skill and loyalty were rewarded, and bloodlines and politics were ignored. He abolished wife-napping, and harshly punished lawbreakers to prevent the spiral of vendettas that had plagued the area. He discarded the names of the various tribes. They would now all be united as people of the felt walls. By 1206, the Mongol nomads of the steppe were one. Temujin then took the title by which he is known to this day, Genghis Khan. This alone was a huge success. But how did he defeat more advanced civilizations like China and Europe? How did he vanquish vast armies that were better trained and better equipped, and with only a hundred thousand nomads? Oh, he had a plan for this too. His strategy was not to beat his enemies at their own game, but to use the advantages that came naturally to his people. Mongols rode horses from the age of three. A simple people without modern technology, they overcame bigger, better equipped armies by using greater speed and mobility. Jack Weatherford writes, Genghis Khan's innovative fighting techniques made the heavily armored knights of medieval Europe obsolete, replacing them with disciplined cavalry moving in coordinated units. Used to living off the land, they had no need to drag slow supply chains behind their army. Each fighter brought three to five extra horses with him, so they would never have a tired mount. This allowed Mongol horsemen to travel 600 miles in only nine days, centuries before the combustion engine. They fought the way modern armies do. They descended upon foes like a swarm of bees, with separate groups all attacking independently from multiple angles. When you look at how the Mongol army waged war, you'd think they had the advantage of seeing into the future, yet modern generals learned it from him. They all studied his style, replacing horses with tanks and planes. He was blitzkrieging centuries before the Germans. Khan's army looked like peasants, so they were often underestimated, which Khan used to his advantage. He also did not reactively lash out with bravado. If his enemies thought he was weak, great. His favorite plan in battle became faking a retreat. When the enemy was sure they had won, they would give chase, breaking their formation and charging right into a waiting ambush, 
where Mongol archers would rain arrows down upon their cornered prey. Of course, there were constantly new challenges. Khan always had a plan, but he was also adaptable. He learned from each and every skirmish. Most would have expected him to be stymied when his army encountered the walled fortress of China. The Mongols didn't even have two-story structures in the steppes, let alone the knowledge of how to assault such fortifications. They had no experience with siege warfare, catapults, or trebuchets. But they didn't have to. Khan knew there were things he didn't know, or were things he didn't have time to learn, so he was always recruiting. Among conquered peoples, anyone who was useful was allowed to join them. One enemy archer had managed to shoot the Khan's own horse out from under him. When the man was caught, Khan did not execute him. He made him a general. Along the same lines, the Mongols absorbed a number of Chinese engineers familiar with siege warfare. Eventually, Khan's army became so successful at it that it ended the era of walled cities. Khan's plans were so solid that the empire did not crumble after his death. It kept expanding for another hundred fifty years. Next time you mail a letter, think of Genghis Khan. His reign brought us the first international postal system. He was a fatherless, illiterate nobody from a terrible place at a terrible time, but became one of the most powerful men to ever live. Genghis Khan did not blindly react to problems. He thought about what he wanted, he made plans, and then he imposed his will on the world. That's what you need. A plan. Most of us don't take the time. We're reactive, like the tribes of the steppes. And the problem with work-life balance is that the old limits are no longer in place for us. We can't rely on the world to tell us when to power down or shift gears. It's on you now. That means you need a plan, or you're always going to feel like you're not doing enough. You won't be facing Chinese armies or Eastern European enemies. Your war is first and last with yourself. But that's a battle you can definitely win with the right plan. What works for you will be a little different from what works for everyone else. But there are some tools to help. As Barry Schwartz made clear, we have so many options these days that we end up being pickers, not choosers. That's a big part of the problem here. We don't decide what we want and then go get it. Things are shoved in our faces and then we shrug and say, okay, I guess. Basically, we let other people tell us what to do. Aristotle said God was the unmoved mover. He moved other things, but nobody told him how to move. We can definitely benefit from emulating this strategy. Being reactive doesn't just hurt your chances of getting what you want. It also reduces your chances of real happiness. Research shows we often don't choose to do what really makes us happy. We choose what's easy. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi found that watching TV made teenagers truly happy 13% of the time. Hobbies scored 34% and sports or games got 44%. But what did teens choose to do most often? They spent four times as many hours watching television. Without a plan, we do what's passive and easy, not what is really fulfilling. Robert Epstein surveyed 30,000 people in 30 countries and found that the most effective method for reducing stress was having a plan. When we think about obstacles ahead of time and consider how to overcome them, we feel in control. That's the secret to really getting things done. As fMRI studies show, a feeling of control motivates us to act. When we think we can make a difference, we're more likely to engage. Things aren't as scary when we have our hands on the wheel. And the most interesting part, and the most helpful to us, 
is that it's not actually being in control that causes all these changes. It's just the feeling of control. Joe Simpson couldn't control his situation when he was stranded on that mountain with a broken leg, but making it a game made him feel like he could. The importance of control goes all the way down to the neuroscience level. Quick summary. When you're stressed out, you literally can't think straight. Under stress, your center of rational thought, the prefrontal cortex, just throws up its arms and quits. Your limbic system, that old lizard brain of emotions, takes the reins. A study by Amy Arnston of the Yale School of Medicine said, Even quite mild acute uncontrollable stress can cause a rapid and dramatic loss of prefrontal cognitive abilities. In an interview, Arnston also said, The loss of prefrontal function only occurs when we feel out of control. It's the prefrontal cortex itself that is determining if we are in control or not. Even if we have the illusion that we are in control, our cognitive functions are preserved. Your heart doesn't like lack of control either. A study from the journal Health Psychology found that when you feel like you don't have control over things, there's a big increase in heart attacks. Guess which people saw the biggest jump? Those normally at low risk for heart problems. To get a better idea of the day-to-day -day importance of control, let's look at entrepreneurs. A survey of nearly 2,000 small business owners showed that more than 50% work more than 40 hours a week. The job isn't less demanding. While 41% said working for themselves reduced stress, 32% said it increased it. But guess what? A whopping 79% expressed satisfaction with running a small business, and 70% were happy with their lifestyle. That crushes the job satisfaction numbers among non-self-employed people we saw earlier. So, comparable hours, comparable stress, but they're far happier. Why? When asked the reason they started their own business, the number one answers were to be my own boss, to make my own decisions, to do it my way. They wanted control. And despite few changes in overall hours and stress, they were happier. What about productivity and success? The London School of Economics and Political Science looked at how 357 CEOs in India used their time and the effect it had on profits. When the big cheese worked more hours, the company made more money. But it was how they used those hours that made all the difference. The extra profits were all attributable to scheduled activities with employees. Hours when the CEOs deviated from their plan didn't make the company an extra nickel. So a plan is vital if you want to be successful and happy. What you'll find next is a framework of steps for you to implement, starting now. But before we get into the specifics, it's important to remember one point. This is your plan. And the thing most likely to get in the way of it working is, well, you. Knee-jerk responses of, I can't do that, and my boss will never let me, are what got you into this position in the first place. Not everyone can implement the following ideas exactly as written, but just dismissing the things that seem like a stretch is a mistake. Obey the spirit of the law even if you can't follow the letter. Simply put, try. Another big mistake people make is looking at a list, seeing the things they already do, and saying, I do that. I'm smart. I can close the book now. Reassuring yourself feels nice, but you're here to improve your life. Focus on the stuff and the plan that you don't do. Remember, emphasizing the negative can feel crummy, but it's the path to improvement. That's what the experts do. Track your time. You cannot balance your time if you don't know where it's going. Former Intel CEO Andy Grove once said, 
To understand a company's strategy, look at what they actually do, rather than what they say they will do. Write down where each hour goes as it happens. Don't rely on your fallible memory. Do this for a week. Where are your activities taking you? Is it where you want to go? Note. This will be depressing. I assure you, you're wasting more time than you think. Beyond that, note which hours are contributing to which of the big four. 1. Happiness equals enjoying. 2. Achievement equals winning. 3. Significance equals counting to others. 4. Legacy equals extending. Or is that hour going in the none-of-the-above bucket? To improve how you use your time, take a lesson from criminology. To reduce crime in a city, tracking people isn't nearly as effective as looking at geography. Researchers discovered that half of crimes happen in just 5% of the city. This is called hotspot policing. Giving those few areas twice the number of police patrols cut crime in half in the hotspots and reduced citywide emergency calls by 6 to 13%. So look for hotspots in your schedule. When do you waste the most time? When do you overdo one of the big four at the expense of another? You'll get more bang for your buck changing your routines around these hotspots than by a vague notion of working less or trying to spend more time with the family. By the same token, look for trends that are working. When do you get disproportionate results? Early morning or late evening? At home or at the office? Try to make those moments more consistent. Remember, you cannot maximize two things that are both dependent on the same resource. Time. You also don't want to eliminate any categories with a sequencing or collapsing strategy. You want the balance of the big four that works for you. Make a decision on how much time you want to allot to each per week. You can revise it later, but you need an answer now. Seriously, write it down. I'll wait. Author hums softly to himself. Once you hit the number of hours in one category, address the hot spots in another. As we talked about in the Grit chapter, turning things into a game can make tricky problems more fun and engaging. Renowned venture capitalist Vinod Kosla certainly stays on top of how well his investments are doing but he also has had his assistant record how many times a month he has dinner with his family. Coming up with a clever metric that works for you can make all the difference. Kevin Bolin, Managing Director of Strategic Investments and Growth Initiatives at KPMG, wanted more time with his wife and two sons. His main hotspot was traveling for work. So he focused on losing his platinum status and all his frequent flyer accounts. That became his goal. He got fewer free flights and perks, but it became a great barometer for how successful his work-life balance efforts were. Talk to your boss. Some will say they just don't have the latitude to make big changes. Their boss won't let them. If you really want a better work-life balance, don't make assumptions. Sit down with your boss and actually discuss it. No, you don't say, hey, I want to work less. Ask your boss for a clear idea of your role and their expectations, and whether this or that change would really be an issue. You'll probably be surprised by the answer, especially if you think about their needs and try to make it a win-win. Ask for an estimate of how much time they want you doing shallow work, like responding to emails and sitting in meetings, and how much they want you cranking on deep work that really produces results. Just having this conversation can drop your stress levels. A study in the Journal of Occupational Health Psychology showed that getting more clarity about what you're expected to do reduces strain when work demands are high. 
It's easier to make the right decisions and not worry. This chat will be good for the boss, too, whether they realize it or not. The Harvard Business Review detailed a strategy called Active Partnering, in which employees and managers disclosed what they wanted to achieve personally and professionally. A study of 473 executives showed that after a year of active partnering, 62 who wanted to leave the firm decided to stick around. A number of them even got promoted. You'll want to have more of these conversations over time as you tweak your plan, but in all likelihood, your boss will appreciate it. Proactive employees who have plans, ask about priorities, and try to head off problems are valuable. The people the boss has to come to after the fact to correct errors are the real difficult ones. And when you produce results, you'll get more latitude. More latitude means more freedom and control to execute your plan. Handle it right, and it's an upward spiral for everyone. You know your troublesome hotspots and what gets you disproportionate results. You're allotting hours to all the big four, and you've gotten direction and approval from your boss. Now you can really make a difference. To-do lists are evil. Schedule everything. Georgetown University professor Cal Newport is the Genghis Khan of productivity. And Cal thinks to-do lists are the devil's work, because the lists don't give any consideration to time. Ever wonder why you never seem to get to the bottom of that list? You can easily list 28 hours worth of activities for a 24-hour day. You need to be realistic about what you can get done in the time you have. The only way to do that is to schedule things on a calendar instead of making an endless list. Decide when you want to leave work, and you'll know how many hours you have. Slot in what you need to get done by priority. Cal calls this fixed schedule productivity. You need boundaries if you want work-life balance. This forces you to be efficient. By setting a deadline of 6 p.m. and then scheduling tasks, you can get control over that hurricane of duties, and you can be realistic instead of shocked by what is never going to happen. Most of us use our calendars all wrong. We don't schedule work. We schedule interruptions. Meetings get scheduled. Phone calls get scheduled. Doctor appointments get scheduled. You know what often doesn't get scheduled? Real work. All those other things are distractions. Often they're other people's work. But they get dedicated blocks of time and your real work becomes an orphan. If real work is the stuff that affects the bottom line, the stuff that gets you noticed, the thing that earns you raises and gets you singled out for promotion, well, let me utter blasphemy and suggest that maybe it deserves a little dedicated time too. Also, at least an hour a day, preferably in the morning, needs to be protected time. This is an hour every day when you get real work done without interruption. Approach this concept as if it were a religious ritual. This hour is inviolate. Emails, meetings, and phone calls are often just shallow work. You want to use this hour for what Cal calls deep work. One hour when you will actually move things forward instead of just treading water. Shallow work stops you from getting fired, but deep work is what gets you promoted. And you don't want this at the end of the day when it may get bumped. You want to be able to bring your full brain power to the tasks that matter. Research shows that two and a half to four hours after waking is when your brain is sharpest. Do you want to waste that on a conference call or a staff meeting? What if you're totally overwhelmed at work? If you never get a break from interruptions, then do your protected time at home for an hour before work. Peter Drucker cites a Swedish study of 12 executives that showed they literally could not work 20 minutes without being interrupted. 
The only one who was able to make thoughtful decisions was the one who spent 90 minutes working from home before entering the maelstrom of the office. Planning out every day so rigorously is a pain at first, but it works. For extra credit, you may want to start planning out your free time, too. Before you recoil in horror at the thought, I've got some data for you. A study of 403 people in the Journal of Happiness Studies showed that managing your free time is associated with higher quality of life. What was fascinating was that increasing people's free time had no effect on their happiness, but scheduling that time in advance made all the difference. As we discussed earlier, we often don't use our time off wisely. We do what is easy instead of what makes us happy. By taking some time to plan, you can make it much more likely you'll really have fun instead of being a couch potato. So scheduling everything and using protected time can make sure the important stuff gets done. But I know what you're thinking. All that shallow work isn't going away. A good way to deal with the busy work is in batches. Rather than reactively living in your inbox, schedule a few intervals when you process emails, return phone calls, and shuffle the papers that need shuffling. After that session is over, turn off notifications, silence the phone, and get back to important stuff. Three batches a day works for me, but a job that requires frequent interaction may need more. The point is to be able to control and schedule these periods as much as possible so they don't creep into the time you're doing deep work. We got to the moon and built the pyramids without email and Facebook. You can go a couple of hours without checking them. What if your boss demands quick replies? Set up an email filter so you only get notifications from the head honcho or whoever else really matters. The rest can wait. There's one more scheduling item you need to keep in mind to make sure you don't undo all the good you've accomplished so far. Learn to say no. If you get rid of unnecessary activities, schedule everything, use protected time, and batch busy work, but you can't stop people from piling unimportant tasks on your desk, you'll forever be mired in the shallows. You have your priorities from your boss, and you'll align your tasks with how many hours you actually have in the day. If something doesn't have priority, and there's just not time for it, you need to say no. To quote Warren Buffett, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Control your context. It matters, more than you think. It influences your decisions even when you don't realize it. When I spoke to Duke professor Dan Ariely, he said, One of the big lessons from social science in the last 40 years is that environment matters. If you go to a buffet, and the buffet is organized in one way, you will eat one thing. If it's organized in a different way, you'll eat different things. We think that we make decisions on our own, but the environment influences us to a great degree. Because of that, we need to think about how to change our environment. We can't control our environment everywhere we go, of course, but we have more control than we usually choose to exercise. Distractions literally make you stupid. Students whose classroom was situated near a noisy railroad line ended up academically a full year behind students with a quiet classroom. When the noise was dampened, the performance difference vanished. Offices aren't much different. Research shows that the most productive computer programmers have one thing in common. It's not experience salary, or hours spent on a project. They had employers who gave them an environment free from distraction. This is where you can actually use being reactive to your advantage. Sean Aker recommends the 20-second rule. Make the things you should do 20 seconds easier to start 
and make the things you shouldn't be doing 20 seconds harder. Sounds tiny, but it makes a big difference. By rearranging your workspace so temptations aren't visible, you can trick yourself into making better choices. Ariely told me of a simple study done at Google's New York office. Instead of putting M&Ms out in the open, they put them in containers. No big deal. What was the result? People ate three million fewer of them in a single month. So close that web browser. Charge your phone on the other side of the room. I know controlling your environment can be hard. Shared workspaces, open plan offices, chatty colleagues and bosses that look over your shoulder. This is why I recommend a simple solution for at least part of the day. Hide. Book a conference room and work from there. Not only will you be distraction-free, but you'll probably be more creative. Stanford professors Jeffrey Pfeffer and Bob Sutton note that a large body of research shows that the more that authority figures hang around, the more questions they ask, and especially the more feedback they give their people, the less creative the work will be. Why? Because doing creative work entails constant setbacks and failure, and people want to succeed when the boss is watching, which means doing proven, less creative things that are sure to work. End the day right. End on time. You used fixed schedule productivity, right? You decided when you wanted to leave work and arranged your schedule around that. Good. Because Leslie Perlow said the key to getting those work-life balance results is to impose a strict time-off mechanism. You want to know when you're leaving the office, so you can make sure you're adding to the buckets of enjoying, winning, counting, and extending, not just working, working, and working. Unless you want to hate your job, how you end the day matters a lot more than you might think. To explain, I need to talk to you about getting things shoved in your butt. Yes, literally getting things shoved in your butt. Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman and Daniel Redelmeyer looked at how much pain people remembered after colonoscopies. It turns out that how long the procedures lasted and the average amount of pain didn't influence people's recollections. What really seemed to matter was the peak amount of discomfort and how it ended. A longer colonoscopy with a higher average amount of pain but a low peak and a gentle ending was remembered as less uncomfortable. Meanwhile, a quick one with a low average but a sharp peak and an unpleasant conclusion was remembered as being far worse. Whether it's arguments with your spouse or the last lines of a Hollywood movie, endings matter. So take the time to end the day well. Those last moments at the office every day loom large in terms of how you feel about your job. Cal Newport recommends a shutdown ritual in which you take the time to close out the day's business and prepare for tomorrow. Research shows that writing down the things you need to take care of tomorrow can settle your brain and help you relax. As neuroscientist Daniel J. Levitin explains, when you're concerned about something and your gray matter is afraid you may forget, it engages a cluster of brain regions referred to as the rehearsal loop, and you keep worrying and worrying. Writing your thoughts down and making a plan for tomorrow switches this off. Then get yourself some downtime. What are the best ways to de-stress? It's far better to engage in a hobby or spend time with friends. Research shows that weekends are great because it's the extra time with the people you care about. You get an average of 1.7 extra hours of friend time on the weekend, and this creates a happiness boost. And don't neglect sleep. You don't want to start hallucinating that you're a football star. Now that you have your rough plan, write it down. Genghis Khan couldn't do that, but you can. 
Research by Roy Baumeister shows not only can this help you achieve your goals, but it also stops your brain from continuing to obsess about stuff when it's time to relax. Your plan won't be perfect right out of the gate. You'll screw up. It's okay. Don't forget the self-compassion. Forgiving yourself both makes you feel better and prevents procrastination. A study of 119 students showed that those who forgave themselves for procrastinating on studying for one test subsequently procrastinated less on a second test. They felt better, and rather than beating themselves up, they were able to move on and perform better. As you see what works and what doesn't, tweak your plan. Which of the big four isn't getting enough hours? Adjust until you're closer to the balance you want. This method of tracking, reviewing, and improving is how Peter Drucker says you can get where you want to go. A plan will move you a lot closer to all-around life success. Currently on this planet, 0.5% of all men are one of Genghis Khan's descendants. That's one in 200. So by um, many standards, he was successful. He had a plan. You don't need to conquer the world, literally or metaphorically. Good enough is good enough if you keep the big four in mind. Stephen J. Ross, who helped build the Time Warner Corporation, put it best. There are three categories of people. The person who goes into the office, puts his feet up on his desk, and dreams for 12 hours. The person who arrives at 5 a.m. and works 16 hours, never once stopping to dream. And the person who puts his feet up, dreams for one hour, then does something about those dreams. We've covered a lot in these six chapters. To put it all in perspective, let's see just how bad things can possibly get, and the heights of how great we can make them if we try.